following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. My eyes are dry, my faith is old, my heart is hard. My prayers are cold And I know how I ought to be Alive to you And dead to me What can be done For an old heart like mine Soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love. Please wash me anew in the wine of your love. My eyes are dry. My faith is old, my heart is hard, my prayers are cold, and I know how I ought to be alive. the reason for no victory. In all of the years I've walked as a Christian, the norm has been for Christians not to have victory over sin. The norm has been for men and women to say as the car bumper sticker said this last week, Christians are not perfect. They're just forgiven. It's almost as though the church should be a place where we welcome sinners and say, you're like us. We're like you. Now let's just get to Jesus and get forgiven. And everything will be all right. That's not what the word of God teaches. The Word of God teaches that we can have victory over our sin, over bondage. I know most of you well. I spent time talking with most of you at length. And I know in every one of your hearts is the cry, Let me be victorious, Lord Jesus. Let me have a life of fullness in the spirit. Heal me of the wounds of the past. Break the bondages that have held me. Release me and let me walk in freedom in the spirit. And yet there is so little of that victory among us. 
I want to go to the Word of God today and open it up. The Lord is going to give us victory over our sin. What does he require that we do to walk into that victory? The one book in all of Scripture that most dramatically deals with the issue of sin and victory is the book by the Apostle John in the first book of John. Not the Gospel of John, but the first book of John. Let me begin in 1 John, the first chapter, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. In other words, there is no sin in God. There's no shadow in God. He dwells in total righteousness. There's no awakening in the morning with a guilty conscience. There's no, there's no trace of bitterness in his heart. There's no, there's no trace of, of anger or hostility that would be unrighteous. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. So in other words, if we claim that we're walking in fellowship with God, and yet we have no victory over our bondage of sin, we're simply lying. We're kidding ourselves, and we are not living by the truth. Now, that comes like a, a sword slash across my heart because of the culture I've been raised in. My culture has been, have confidence in Jesus that you're saved, and don't worry about your sin. You're saved. The blood of Jesus covers you, and you have it made. Just go straight ahead and work as hard as you can to further the kingdom of God. Don't be concerned about your sin. And how many times as a pastor I have been rebuked soundly after preaching the gospel, or how many times after I spoke on the radio, callers would call me and rebuke me soundly and say, Pastor, don't be concerned about sin. Be concerned just the joy of walking in Jesus. Well, I have to tell you, there's a great big part of my heart that wants to say, you're absolutely right. I'm saved. I'm covered. The blood has covered me. Now let's just go and live wonderful lives. And let's also be able to hang with the world as we're comfortable hanging with it. And so we're going to spend our money the way the world spends it. We're going to go to the same places for entertainment. We're going to talk about the same kinds of things. Basically, we're going to be the world, except we have the blood covering us. So we're forgiven, but we're worldly. Now, you and I together have said that will not suffice. 
We have read the word of God carefully, and we know that will not suffice. The Lord Jesus is calling us to a much different place than that. So the question is, how do we get to that different place? We've spoken of it in terms of dying to ourselves. That's a very difficult way to speak about it because it's so confusing. Does that mean my personality is supposed to die? Does that mean my sense of humor is supposed to die? Does that mean that I won't be recognized? I just become flatline. I can't go play. I can't do anything fun. I'm just, I'm supposed to die. So, okay, I'll lay here and die. Now, God, what do you want to do with me? Now, that's not what we're talking about at all. And some of you young people have spoken to me and you've said, what am I supposed to do, pastor? I'm supposed to die. What am I supposed to do? I don't want to do anything. How do we enter into this? How do we begin to walk in a manner? And and I'm sorry, today I can't be conceptual about this. I have to be concrete. I need to know concretely what steps does God want me to take to enter into that place where he said, take up your cross and follow me? Where is the victory in the Christian life? What brings the victory? There's one thing I need to quickly deal with, however. If you look at First John, the first chapter, verse 3, it says, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And it raises this age-old question of, do I need you? And do you need me? Do we need each other? And the church has always been so like this, wishy-washy, back and forth, down the road. I came out of a time in my life of straight orthodoxy. Dogma and doctrine were everything. And I used to say as a young pastor about my church, I don't like the people there, but I'm there because I like the teaching of Jesus. And I didn't like them. They were legalists. They harassed me at every turn. They boycotted meetings where I would be preaching. I mean, it was not a pretty sight. And I went into what was called relational theology. And there was a great move in the Christian church back in the late 60s called relational theology. And what we did was we began to teach that we need each other. In fact, we went so far as to say, your only a way to know God is by how you know your brother and sister. We began to teach things like the way you treat your brother is the way you're treating Jesus. And so out of that whole focus, we began to move into small groups. And we began to use the Rogerian technique, which basically said that if you have a small group, and you allow that group total freedom to deal with one another, they will attack 
one person in the group over an issue. And if that person is attacked, everybody else will come to their rescue. And so it's safe in a small group to be totally honest and transparent with each other because the Rogerian system says that everything will balance in the end. And this rule began to dominate across America in the church growth movement. Lloyd Ogilvy, the chaplain of the Senate some years ago, was the one who directly brought me into this kind of theology. I'm not talking about a backyard theology. I'm talking about the generalized movement across the American church was to say, we need each other. We're not dealing with the world in the way we should. And so let's move now into this relational approach. And I was trained in that approach through seminars and workshops, through conferences. I would spend a week or two weeks at a time in intense, long sessions of training and skill building in relational theology, conflict management, conflict resolution, self-esteem building, discovery of gifts. And so we learned to pass out the sheets and have everybody do the, the form and find out what your gifts are and where you belong in the church. All of that emphasis on needing each other did not bring us closer together. The result was the church wandered after the psychologists. And so Jim Dobson and, and the Minrith Meyer Clinic and other focuses began to dominate the airwaves of the Christian radio. And they still do today. Because psychology, because of this desperate kickback against dogma and doctrine, and back into the relational, they said everything has to be focused first on what is our relationship with each other, and based on that, we'll focus on Jesus. Unfortunately, Jesus never got focused on. And today that has led the church into what we now see as seeker-sensitive, a church ministry, where you take the cross away, you don't talk about the blood, you don't talk about sin, you, you sanitize the gospel, and you don't confront people, and you don't deal with sin. I'm giving you some of this historical background so that you understand that there has to be an understanding together that we come to about the place that our brothers and sisters have in our lives with Christ. With that, let me come now. You have often heard me say, I need Jesus. And I say that in response to my background in relational theology and the way I saw that bankruptcy occur in the body of Christ. But it's also true there's a mud ditch on each side. And we need the word of God to instruct us on how to need Jesus and what that does in our relationship with each other. I've heard some of you in this fellowship say, I need you, my brother. And it's refreshing to hear that. But it also puts up red flags for me.
I can remember so many times finishing a conference of leading 150 or 200 pastors for a week-long conference in this relational theology, a residential conference. And I can remember the exhaustion of my spirit. If I have to talk with one more person about their inner life, if I have to deal with one more person's emotional problem, I'm just going to go crazy. Now, I want to tell you, if I were to have you all for one week in a residential workshop time to talk about Jesus, at the end of that week, my heart would not be exhausted. My body would be, but my heart would not be. Because when my focus is Jesus, I am refreshed. When my focus is my brother or my sister, I'm exhausted. I want to read that from Scripture. But let's now go to this issue of fellowship as it's in the context of this first chapter of the book of 1 John. He's identified in verse 3 that we need this fellowship. It's desirable. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, but it's also with each other. This is the message in verse 5. We've heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. So in other words, the fellowship is first going to have to be with Jesus Christ. If the fellowship is with Jesus Christ, there will be no deviant, devious, destructive behavior. It's going to be clean toward Jesus. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. What is this whole thing about? As I read the scripture, this whole thing is about one word, fellowship. It's not about being perfect. It's not about doing everything right. Those are part. What it's really about is fellowship. Fellowship with Jesus. And because that fellowship with Jesus is pure and clean, we then have fellowship with one another. I've sat for hours. I've sat for days. I've sat for weeks with a husband and a wife in pastoral counseling, dealing with marriage issues. Only to have that couple finally say, we just know we're not going to make it, we're going to agree to divorce. I could not, using every skill I had been taught, bring that couple together at a place where they could finally make peace with one another and walk as one in the Spirit. I couldn't do it. Now the Lord has taught me another way. When I sit down with a couple, my question is, are you willing to have absolute, total fellowship with Jesus Christ? If you're not willing to have that fellowship with Jesus Christ, you're not safe with your wife. If you're not willing to have fellowship with Jesus, you're not safe with your husband. It's fellowship with Jesus that makes us safe to be in fellowship one with another. And we can take every human process possible. I've done the small group processes in church. 
I've broken the congregation up into little groups and had them go through questions and exercises. I've done all kinds of things in this manner. And I tell you, it's bankrupt. There has to be a coming into Jesus and a breaking of the bondages of sin. And when those bondages of sin are broken, fellowship, sweet fellowship, breaks out in the whole church. And so the focus is Jesus. The focus is Jesus. The lack of fellowship between brothers is an issue not to work on, but to confess. The lack of fellowship between brothers is a sign of lack of fellowship with Jesus Christ. And so when I identify brokenness among brothers, I say, oh, God, would you cause us to repent? Would you cause me to repent? Because I need to come to Jesus. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That's a result of walking in the light. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So John now has laid out his premise. Let's now go to the eighth verse where he begins to be very specific about how this begins to happen. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now we have taken that statement out of context. We've put it up on our mirrors and we've said, okay, we are all in sin. We will always be in sin. That's what the eternal security people have done. If you'll read carefully this first chapter in context, you'll begin to understand that he's speaking about the beginning place. The beginning place. A person who begins to come to Jesus cannot come to Jesus unless he confesses his sin. The first step toward Jesus is not after an ice cream cone or a blessing. The first step toward Jesus is a recognition of my sin. As I begin to recognize that sin, it's a sure sign that I am coming closer to Jesus. Because the closer I come to Jesus, the more sinful I'm going to appear in my own eyes. And so at that point in my life, when I was so deep in relational theology, had you said to me, are you a sinner, Ray? I would have said, I have no idea, and it doesn't matter. I'm covered by the blood. I would have been hard-pressed to come up with one sin. Why? Because I was that far away from Jesus. I've had pastors come up to me and say, Ray, why are you preaching on this sin stuff? I don't have sin in my life. And I've said to them, well, what happened that you don't have? Where, how did you get the victory? And they said, oh, when I went up the aisle and I, I accepted Jesus, he covered all my sins. So now when God looks at me, he doesn't see me, he sees Jesus. I said, oh, wait a minute, are you telling me that that underneath Jesus, you've got a lot of sin going on. Well, you know, we all do. But I don't see it because it's covered by the blood. They're miles away from Jesus. 
the closer we begin to come to Jesus, the more the light of Jesus begins to shine upon us, and the more we see the sin that is in our life and in our heart, and the more that sin begins to trouble us, because we see that that sin is separating us from the heart of God, and we can't stand that separation from God. When I hear a brother or sister begin to pray and say, Oh God, my heart's too far away from you. I begin to weep because that's the truth. And I have lived my life way too far away from Jesus. And he's now calling for me to no longer live at a distance from him, but to come close. He's calling you to come close. No more distance from Jesus' heart. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In other words, if we want victory over sin, there's only one way to gain that victory. And that's in the prayer closet where we confess our sin. That is the only way God has given us to enter into the kingdom of heaven. We have called that repentance. Repentance is a difficult word to get your hands around, though. Because we've got our little technical definitions. You know, repentance means turning and going the other way. Well, most of us can't turn and go the other way from our lives. We've got responsibilities. So this word confession begins to come in, and it begins to sharpen the knife that cuts into my soul. What is confession? Maybe I should begin first with what confession is not. Confession is not admitting that I am wrong. Confession is not admitting that I am wrong. Judas admitted that he was wrong. And it did not bring him into the heart of God. The seventh chapter of Jeremiah begins to deal with the worthless false religions of that day. In the third verse, Jeremiah the prophet says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your forefathers forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. What were the deceptive words they were trusting? 
They were saying this is the wonderful sanctuary built by King David and King Solomon. And look at the, the ark is here and the altar burnt offering is here. The blood sacrifices are being offered. And he says, don't trust in that. Well, if you can't trust in the blood of Jesus, what are you going to trust in? So why would he say, don't trust in that? Because their words are false. They're saying, this is the sanctuary, but their actions are saying, I serve idols. So Jeremiah here gives us another key. He says, reform your ways and your actions. So what are my ways? My predictable responses. My ways are my predictable responses. And the Lord is saying our ways have to change. In other words, when when Jan says something to me, I always respond this way. And now the Lord is saying, examine that way. And if it's a sinful way, confess that way. Confess your way. Confess your way. See, we like to think about sin as actions, but sin is a condition. Sin is not an action, it's a condition. It's a disease of the heart. Sin is broken down, not as an action, but as a condition. And then we begin to look more finely at it. We, we tune it in more sharply, and we begin to see that that sickness controls our ways and our actions. And so if we come back to this passage that speaks about confessing our sins, What he's really speaking about are our ways and our actions. Most most of my ways, most of my life, have been mostly prideful. Because I have thought about the world from this little circle that's drawn around me, and said, how can I go into the world and wrest from it what I desire? How can I make it align with what I need and with what I want? Those are my ways. Now, the way I go out and do that, those are my actions. And see, we're willing to deal with our actions. If our action gets shown up, okay, I'll pull back and I'll act another way. But the ways haven't been dealt with yet. The way of dishonesty. The way of sexual addiction. The way of gluttony. The way of anger. Those are ways that are expressing or an avenue or a road for certain kinds of actions. If I get in a fight with somebody and I punch somebody out, those are actions. But the highway led me to that place where I would do that act. 
And that highway that led me to that place where I would do that act is called my way. It's not accidental that a highway is called a wayfair. Or that you, if you travel the highway, are called a wayfair. In other words, as you walk down that way, you have certain actions on your way. Where are you, where are you on your way to right now? Your way. The Lord is saying through the prophet Jeremiah, it's not enough to just try to deal with your actions. You're going to have to deal with your ways. You're going to have to bring those ways into the presence of God. And those are the issues that then cause us to begin to confess both the ways and the actions. Now you think immediately, or at least I did, of of King Saul. Here's a man who has been chosen by God. He's been made the king over Israel. He has seen miraculous signs. He has seen miracles to confirm that he is called to be the king. And how does he respond? The Holy Spirit comes upon him, and in one moment he's changed. And what is his response to that change? When they all gather to choose the king, he hides with the baggage. His heart is absolutely humble. There is nothing in him that says, stride up there, you tall, big man, and be the man. No, the Holy Spirit has come upon him. But very quickly, after he has some victories, his old ways return, and he pushes back the ways of the Holy Spirit. And as he pushes back the ways of the Holy Spirit, his old ways step in and take over. So you find King Saul is told to wait at Gilgal, to wait seven days. Samuel doesn't come because God wants to know what are his ways going to be. Finally, the situation became utterly desperate. The Philistines were marshalling thousands of troops. They were marshalling all of their armor. There were a few hundred men with King Saul. All he knew was now to take things into his own hands and do what he had to do. Let's read it together. First Samuel, the 13th chapter, verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad, and Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offering. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Instead, he said, I will be my own priest. 
If God is not going to function the way I want him to function, I'll take over as priest. I'm king. I can do it. As soon as he'd finished offering up the offering, Samuel arrives. And Saul goes out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time, in other words, it's your fault. I'm angry at you, God, because you didn't show up for me. That the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I've not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. What did Saul do? Three things. He saw, he thought, and he was compelled. He saw, he thought, and he was compelled. Those are the basic ways of man. All of our ways are summed up in that. We look with our eyes, we perceive, and out of our background and our experience, we come to certain conclusions. And then we think that thing through. And after we've thought it through long enough, we finally feel compelled to do something about it. Because nobody else is. So Saul felt compelled. So he stepped in. And he did what he shouldn't have done. He became priest. Samuel says, what have you done? Verse 13, you acted foolishly. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. I'm a lot closer in terms of being a relative Saul than I am to Samuel. Because I too want to kind of look at things and and analyze it, come to some conclusions, and then feel compelled to act. The Holy Spirit keeps saying to me, pull back, let me act. Keep your own judgments to yourself. Pull back, let me act. Don't step out in your ways, Ray, in your take charge ways. Step back. So I have to come to God, and I have to begin to deal with my ways. It's bad enough I have to deal with my actions. But it's my ways God wants to deal with. Because then the actions will change. So when I come back to this passage of scripture in 1 John, notice what it says. If we confess our sins, our ways and our actions... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So there's the promise. The promise is if I will go into my prayer closet and I will confess before God, then he will do certain things for me. So why is there so little success, so little victory? Over addictions, over strife, over bitterness. Well, it's very simple because I don't want to go and confess that. I'll admit it, 
But don't ask me to confess it. If you look in the histories of revival, you'll see that every revival has been triggered by the Holy Spirit finally breaking into the life of a man or woman, a boy or a girl, and causing that person to begin to weep for their sin. Because the sin looks so ugly to them, they can no longer contain their wickedness. They can't contain it any longer. It has to be dealt with. You see, we have so calloused our hearts that we are accommodating with our sin. And we think some human solution is going to meet our need. If someone would just do enough for me, if someone would just love me enough, if someone would just do enough for me, if I could just have enough money, if I could just be respected, if I could just be stronger, if I could just, all of that is avoiding the only thing that God says will give us victory over the brokenness of our lives. And that is heartbroken confession before God. I want to be very practical. I get angry. I go into my prayer closet. And I say, Lord God, I've been angry. What have I done? Thank you for forgiving me. What have I done? I have admitted to God that I got angry. And now I expect him to do everything he needs to do to cover up the destruction my anger caused. And when God doesn't do that, it's his fault. That's not confession. For me to confess that anger means that I go into the prayer closet and I am very specific. Lord, I got angry at my wife because she said this to me. And I wait. And the Holy Spirit will begin to probe and he'll begin to say, And why did she say that to you? Lord, I don't want to go there. I confess my sin. I want to be forgiven. Make me clean. I'm out of here. You know why the prayer closet is so hard? Because we don't want to admit what's really going on. If we come into that prayer closet and we confess that obvious sin that we've been convicted of and we ask Jesus, to deal with that sin in its specific form, he then is going to begin to press us on what was underneath that sin. And he'll begin to open up another area. And as we confess that, he'll begin to open up another area. And as we begin to confess that, he begins to open up another area until finally it gets down to the very bottom sin. And you know what the very bottom sin is? I will ascend to the seat of the Most High. I'm God. I have the right to choose what is right or wrong. And when we get to that bottom place, a whole chain of sin suddenly gets ripped right up out by the roots because we recognize who we are and what we are and we recognize even more who Jesus is and what Jesus is 
He's the risen Lord. He's the king of kings. He's the master of the universe. He is our savior. He is the one who died on Calvary for our sin. You want victory over your sin? Then go into the prayer closet and begin to delve into the very depth of that thing. And don't be shallow. Don't hold back. Ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart and to take you all the way to the bottom of that sin. And when he gets you to that bottom place, the blood of Jesus will flow and break that sin and set you free. There is a hatred that has to be associated. And this is why we don't go here very often. It's much easier for me to hate somebody who does something that I'm displeased by. But when I get in the prayer closet and I begin to confess and go all the way to the bottom, I begin to hate this person who's walked in such deception and such arrogance before God. And all I can do at that point is weep before him. But see, we have so many things in our culture to salve over. We can go shopping. We can do something with the children. We can read a magazine. We can get a Big Mac. We can, we can get busy and do something that we can reward ourselves for doing. And now all of the guilt is forgotten and all of the sin is forgotten. Hey, God, I confessed it. Why am I still having problems? You're not faithful, God. No, we didn't get to the bottom. God wants to take this fellowship all the way to the bottom. Because when we go to the bottom and we confess and we get clean, joy breaks out. Joy, unbelievable joy breaks out. Is there something holding you today? Is there a bondage holding you today? Then I pray God increases that conviction on your heart. You know what the word comfort means? To cause to come forth with pain. So if I come to comfort a person, what I really am there for is to help release the pain in that person so that it can come out. And the means God has given us to do this is not relational theology. It's confession. It's repentance. Then the tears begin to flow. You'll know you're getting closer when the tears begin to flow. Most of us are used to crying when we don't get our way. Those are crocodile tears. To fortify us and warn others that if you push any further, I'm going to eat you. I'm speaking about a different kind of tear. I'm speaking about that broken heartedness. Where God has just come and gone all the way to the bottom. Where our ways are exposed to the light of the glory of Jesus. Where our actions are there. Fully exposed. Now every interchange with a brother, sister, husband, wife, children. 
every point of conflict gives us a wonderful place to start unraveling this knotted cord. Not their cord, our cord. It gives us a wonderful place to begin in the prayer closet to get to the bottom because every sin leads us to the same place. Pride. Pride. Self-sufficiency. You see, when this kind of confession is done, restitution is then made. A hallmark of every revival has been things that have been stolen have been returned. Lies that have been said are repented of. Things are made right that were destroyed. Restitution between husbands and wives begins when the husband says, how can I serve my wife? The wife says, how can I serve my husband? Children say, how can I serve mom and dad? Mom and dad say, how can I serve my children? Fellowship says, how can we serve one another? That's a result of of not humanistic fellowship. That's the result of confession to Jesus and getting clean from our sin, getting pure by the washing of the blood. Please hear this promise, and I challenge you, take this promise into your prayer closet. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin. So that thing that you bring to him, Any sin you bring to God, he will forgive you for. But he doesn't leave you there. He then says, and purify us from all unrighteousness. So God says, if you'll confess, I'll forgive you, and I'll get you cleaned up. It's almost as though the the little boy comes in the house after playing outside in the mud. He was supposed to stay clean because he was going to go to town. But he comes in and all of his clean clothes are filled with mud. And he comes to his mama and he says, Mama, look, I'm all dirty. Well, how'd that happen? Well, Mama, I I saw a mud puddle and I wanted to see if there was a tadpole in it. And he begins his whole tale of how he waded into that mud puddle. And how he had to get down on his hands and knees and search for that. Can that little boy clean himself up? He can go look in the mirror. Oh, mommy, look, I've got mud here. And he goes, I'll wipe it off. And his hand is full of mud. What happens? More mud. Oh, mom, I don't like the mud over here. Let's get that off. More mud. Oh, mama, look, I've got a little spot here. Oh. Now it's all mud. There's no way he can improve his condition. There is no way you can improve your condition before God. You can't wipe the sin off your life. But if you'll come like that little boy and say, oh, mama, I'm dirty all over. Mama's going to say, how did you get that way? Mama might even say, now there are going to be some consequences for doing this. Why? So you don't go and do it again. Because mama's interested not just in getting you cleaned up to go to town with her. Mama's interested in you not doing that again. 
because she always wants you to be able to go in with her. Fellowship is the issue. God wants to fellowship with us. We can't clean ourselves up. But the washing by the blood is promised. The washing by the blood is promised. So he says, if we confess our sin, Mama, I'm dirty. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Do you need to be washed today? Are you willing to admit you've been playing in the mud? That washing is there for us, but it's going to take some work in the prayer closet. It's going to take some work on our knees. I wondered if I came to one of you today and I said, do you know what's between your heart and Jesus? You know what I think you'd know? I think you'd know exactly what it was. God knows your secrets, those secret desires, those rebellious actions. Thank you so much for joining us today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. Write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, P.O. Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195, or visit us online at nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you. We love you. Before the presence of His glory with great joy with great joy now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy Christ alone.